0: Welcome to the One America podcast. This is your host, Sophia Nelson. And while February is almost over, we are winding up our Black History Month podcast, and we have a really good treat for you today. I am honored to have with me three of the eight. Uh, civil rights, student rights activists uh, at Swarthmore College in the year 1969. Uh, And they are here to talk about their amazing book, uh, which came out first in 2019, and then again in paperback last fall. The book is titled Seven Sisters and a Brother, Friendship, Resistance, and Untold Truths Behind Black Student Activism in the 1960s. I was humbled to be asked to write the foreword for the paperback book. Please pick up a copy. Read it with your grandkids. Read it with your kids. In this moment where we stand as a nation, we are divided once again. Black against white. Straight against gay. uh, Old against younger. Liberal against conservative. Working class against upper class. You would think that we would be smarter. You would think that we would do better. But I'm still an optimist. And when I listen to these three, I learned some really important things about trust and truth and standing together when you have a cause worth fighting for. So listen up. Uh, This is a good one. And you're going to want to share it. And you're going to want to pick up the book. Thank you for being with us. Happy Black History Month. have three iconic 1960s era student civil rights activists with me today and they are here to discuss their powerful book seven sisters and a brother friendship resistance and untold truce behind black student activism in the 1960s i had the honor of pinning the book forward for the paperback edition of the book that came out this past fall it is a must read if you want to understand the progress that we have made today as African Americans of a new generation, we stand on their shoulders. I have three of the eight here with me today. Uh, let me introduce them and then we're gonna bring them on. Marilyn Holafield, who I know very well and had the pleasure of working with uh when I was a lawyer in a law firm, is one of three Black students to desegregate Leon High School in Tallahassee, Florida. After graduating from Swarthmore College with a degree in economics and a concentration in Black Studies, she received her Juris Doctorate from Harvard Law School. She worked as a civil rights lawyer and later joined Holland and Knight LLP, becoming the first Black woman partner of a major law firm in Florida. She co-founded the Swarthmore Black Alumni Network and the Miami Museum of Contemporary Art of the African Diaspora. Harold Buchanan is a retired information systems professional from Southern New Jersey. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in mathematics from the college of Swarthmore and was one of the first to complete a concentration in black studies. In recent years, Harold co-founded the Swarthmore Black Alumni Network. And finally, last but not least, we have Marilyn May. She is a retired university professor and a lifelong advocate for high quality education for black children and their educators with degrees in mathematics and in education from Swarthmore College, Harvard, and Columbia Universities. She has co-founded two charter schools in the Bronx, New York, and authored books on supplemental education for black children and on Beloved Black Educators. Now, before I bring them on, let me say a couple things as I always do. One, if you hear any background noise, don't worry about that. That's because we're live as always. And I make my guests sit through my introductions, but these are good guests. They're doing really good. And uh, I'm gonna welcome them on. And I really want you guys to go out and get this book, Seven Sisters and a Brother. It's a great title, great cover and it's a it's an unbelievably amazing story so welcome to the podcast
1: thank you thank
2: you well thank you Sophia, for lifting our story our voices and black history we appreciate this opportunity to talk about our book and to share with your audience our story
0: um, I'm excited to have you, and, and when I say it, it was indeed my honor to pin the forward for the paperback. I mean that, um, uh, you know, oftentimes, and I'm going to start off uh, with you, Marilyn Holifield, uh because we know each other, we're sorority sisters, and I I think a lot of times people in my generation, Gen X, uh, you know, I have baby boomer parents uh, of your age group. And I still have a grandparent alive from the greatest generation. My maternal grandmother's 92. And often when we listen to the stories of and see, you know, now that we have history channel and we have ancestry and we can learn so much about our history as black people in this country and what our forebears went through. For me, uh, reading the book was like a walk through, not just history, but it really helped me to understand the context we're operating in now, in the 21st century. And so Marilyn, uh, my question to you is first, tell us a little bit about the book, but more importantly, why, why you guys decided that it was so important that you share this story in 2019 when you did Uh, when the hardcover edition came out. So tell me about the book, but why did you guys feel it was so important to tell that story now?
2: We are a story of eight students, eight voices, who for eight days occupied the admissions office of Swarthmore College and caused enduring change. And this was change that occurred back in 1969 when we occupied the admissions office. We needed to tell this story because we wanted to take charge of the narrative. We wanted to elevate and preserve and tell the story that we believed had been had not ever been told accurately. We also wanted to respond to the requests from those who came behind us, particularly Black students who came behind us who did not know the story. They wanted to know why did we do it? What did we do? How did we do it? And we felt it important not to let this history be lost. We felt it important to not let this history be forever hidden. And so we came together in a collaborative way, just as we came together back in 1969, in a collaborative way to tell the hidden story of what actually happened back in 1969 that led to the dramatic changes at a more diverse and inclusive college at Swarthmore College that you see today.
0: Let's dig into that a little bit though, because I know that people out there who are gonna be listening, we have a, a huge audience all across the globe, literally. What is the story? What happened at Swarthmore College in 1969? Tell us what you did and and... What happened?
2: What happened was we were, most of us were graduating seniors. And when we arrived on campus in September of 1969, we noticed that we had been talking with the college, negotiating with the college for several years over the small number of black students that they had admitted, over the small number of faculty, In fact, when we arrived, there were no black faculty. But when we arrived in September of 1969, we saw that the student body, the number of black students had decreased nearly 50%. And then the tipping point was when the college put on reserve in the library, a report that identified in the aggregate, but there was so few of us there, they specified our family incomes, our family's marital status, our family, our SAT scores, all kinds of personal information that if it were released today and put on reserve in a library, it would be illegal. And we believe that that was totally unfair and inappropriate. And we asked, well, we maybe demanded that the college remove that private information about us as individuals and our families collectively, as well as individual families. We demanded that they remove it from the library. They refused to remove it. And that added to our belief that the college was not listening to us and they needed something to prod them. They needed direct action to prod them to listen to the voices of black students that they were making and deaf ears to. And that's when we decided that we had to take the direct action. Now I have to tell you that Marilyn May, Harold Buchanan, Andrea Andrea White Kelly, they lived in the New York area And so they got together, and I believe also Jeanette Domingo, they got together at Marilyn's home in New York City and really put together the the details of the plan. And you will hear from them how they got together in New York and plan to occupy the admissions office even down to Harold bringing the plans of the building so we would know where to go and what would be the best way to pull off this sit-in.
0: So let's put a pin in that. As Oprah would say, that's, a, that's an aha moment right there, folks. So um, you guys made a decision. Um, very well planned out, very well thought out. This is way before there was Black Lives Matter folks listening, so pay attention because I'm going to go somewhere with this a little bit later. Uh, Some of you don't understand that this has been happening for a really long time uh, in our country, uh, in our lifetimes, and before uh, where Black activism uh, was necessary. and, and, And... uh, brought about great change. So uh, Meryl, let's go back to this for a moment. So they came down, they had the plan. you guys had a plan, uh, tell us what happened. Well, and,
2: and I wanna just make clear that this wasn't a plan that just came out of the sky. Years of negotiations, we had years of asking the college to listen to us, to believe that we could make the college better by having more black students and more uh, black faculty. And so uh, the plan was to come back to school after the Christmas break and take over the admissions office. And so only a very, very few small number of people knew about the plans. And in the tales about what happened years later, for many years and decades later, no one really knew about the meeting that had occurred in Maryland's uh, Marilyn May's home. No one really knew about the the strategies that Harold, Marilyn, Jeanette, and Andrea put together in their home. No one knew that when we came back to campus that January after Christmas break and asked other students to join the uh, direct action, no one knew who really was involved in that planning and how it occurred. And so, the night before the takeover, Black students were approached separately or together and asked whether they were with us or not. And those who, we didn't tell them, they weren't told what was going to happen. They just had to trust they had to respect that something important was going to happen, and it was a deciding moment that the people on that first night trusted the judgment of the leaders of that action. And that's one of the things that that I believe our bonds over the years prior to that night when people were asked to join the direct action prior to that we had cultivated bonds of respect and trust and our backgrounds allowed us to understand the importance of respect trust and also
0: faith i think that's powerful going to start part two of this powerful interview with Marilyn Holifield and uh, Mr. Buchanan and Miss May, and uh, we're going to hear from the one brother in the group now, Harold Buchanan, who, uh, fascinating discussion with him about being the one black male amongst a group of seven sisters. Can you imagine in 1969 and the solidarity and the trust and the respect that they all had for one another, and that they still have for one another, and then Marilyn May will bring us home at the end. Look these people up. I've given you their bio, but they're amazing. They are the people you should know about, that your kids should know about, that your grandkids should know about. Our greatest generation, the World War II generation, which is uh, my grandparents. I have a grandmother still alive at 92, my maternal grandmother. I've lost all my other grandparents, but When I think of their generation in World War II and what they did to literally save the world from fascism and Nazism, and then to come fast forward to my parents' generation, which is the same generation as Marilyn and Harold and Marilyn, um, and what they did to make sure that a Ketanji Brown Jackson could be nominated to the US Supreme Court, and that a Kamala Harris could become vice president of the United States, that a Barack Obama could become president of the United States, i think it's so important that we give them platform that we give them voice and we let them speak their truth and share their wisdom about what it means to invoke change to call people out to call them in to make sure you hold them accountable listen up this is good stuff i think that's powerful and uh, we'll circle back this harold i want to hear from you as the one brother among the sisters And well, I bet you could tell stories of, uh, just what that moment was like in terms of when you guys made the decision, okay, we're going to do this, understanding that you were students at the time that maybe you could get expelled, that the police could get involved, that there could be all kinds of repercussions on your young lives. Talk to me as the one man in this group among ladies about the power of working with you sisters. And, um how you saw this playing out at the time and, and then and I'm going to second part, which is, uh, you know, put it in the context of maybe what you see happening right now. Uh, and I'm going to ask the same thing of Marilyn in a different way, but just kind of what it was like to be the one brother amongst the sisters, the power of the moment you guys seized on, even despite the possible downsides of which there were many, um, and and kind of put that in the context of the moment you see us in right now uh, in the United States with all this racial strife and everything we have going.
3: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again, Sophia. Um, <clears throat> this uh, you know this was a great opportunity for us. Uh, we had studied uh, you know Black history, and uh, it, it was a time when. Uh, there was activism going on all over, and kind of like the Black Lives Movement now. Um, people were active all over the place uh, with sit-ins uh, at lunch counters, and uh, especially in the South and uh, uh, colleges everywhere were um, had uh, Black student unions, and uh, they were taking over buildings. And so we, uh, I guess, we were caught up in the moment and uh, felt that um, with the kind of things the college was doing to us that. Uh, we we just needed to do something, and uh, it was it was uh, great for me uh, as the one brother to uh, be able to work with this group of women. I was raised in a uh, in a mostly white community, a small black neighborhood in a white community, white schools. Uh, so they had um, coming to college and having a a a, a group of uh, black women uh, who were educated and intelligent that that we could talk to. Um, and who had a different experience for me, uh, you know, uh, many of come from cities or or um, uh, schools where there were more black people. Uh, it gave me a different perspective, and uh, it gave uh, me a sense of urgency to do something. Uh, you know, we had learned um, about uh, you know the history of the country and how uh, if you've been to the. Uh, African-American Museum in Washington, D.C., there, where they have an exhibit of uh, Jefferson and all the bricks uh, that represented all of his slaves. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of things we hadn't been taught in high school, at least I hadn't been taught in high school. So it was really eye-opening to, to, to learn about these things. And, and this was an opportunity to just uh, stand up and, uh, and do something about it and just felt it really needed to be done.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I remember being an African-American studies minor in college, uh, and I think my first class was my sophomore year, and uh, I remember walking out of class, out of Dr. Hayes' class, thinking, what in the hell? What? Like, uh,
2: huh? Exactly.
0: Where have I been? And, Mm -hmm. you know, look, you grow up black in America, no matter where you are, particularly of your generation and mine as well, but certainly we know what that experience is like every day but then to go to college and all of a sudden sudden be enlightened in ways that you are like wait a minute um I had no idea that this was the history of our people or that these things happened or that we had these amazing people in our history who've done amazing things and so um yeah I think you're right about that that it's a real eye-opener and what I really admire about what you all did, it's going to lead me to you, Marilyn May, because you sound like you might have been the plotter in chief here, which I really like. Not <laughs> uh, being that it was in your house. Uh, you know, it sounds to me like, again, I'm still trying to get Harold, and then you can hand it off to Marilyn uh, May. But it's a big difference between knowing, like, okay, this is wrong, and we don't like this, but then making the decision that y'all were going to do something about it, Taking over an administration building is a pretty big deal. Uh, So, um, Carol, when was that decision made for you? Was that something you were thinking about or after you sat down with the sisters and then, Marilyn, you chime in?
3: Well, you're right about Marilyn. uh, And the the plotter in chief.
2: I I like that. Yeah,
3: you you picked her up correctly on that. We had talked about, uh, the need to do something uh, you know as as the college um, you know uh, did their tricks and 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 were not being um, uh, respectful of us uh, we knew we had to do something and when we got together uh, at her house uh, you know under the watchful eyes of her parents <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it uh, You know, we decided exactly what we're going to do and, and, and made the definite plans. It was just something that um, we trusted each other, and that had a lot to do with, we trusted each other uh, to um, have each other's back, and even though we knew that uh, there were risks, um, we were in it together. And, uh, you know, so uh, it made it a lot easier. So,
0: Yeah, so Carolyn Plotter-in-Chief that you are. <laughs> you know, it, it takes one to know one. I, I recognize the personality type, trust me. <laughs> um, I'm all about, you know, holding folks accountable when they don't do the right thing. And I, I, I want to know from you, because you have such an interesting background as a professor and all that you've accomplished. You're all amazingly accomplished. And again, I don't think, People understand how big of a deal it is in the year 1969, uh, in the 60s, to be at a school like Swarthmore, which is one of our sub IVs, if you will, right, in the elite schools of the Bryn Mawrs and the Swarthmores and the, you know, um, amazing, um, just upper elite, very white, very wealthy uh, places um and, and marilyn let me lead off with this question for you let me let me change yours tell me take us back to 1960s the late 1960s what's it like being because i teach at a very white campus christopher newport university in virginia and is very white um and this is near 2022 uh very little diversity and that informs a lot of how people respond react think. what's it like in the late 1960s being on a campus like Swarthmore, and you guys being African American, what's that like?
1: Yes, um, thank you so much uh, for picking up on these things. And it is a, a very isolating experience, and and um, it's amazing how we find ourselves in 2022 with our young people going through a lot of those same kinds of experiences. I was born and raised in Harlem. And uh, I had this sort of this dual existence in Harlem within with a church, a community closely knit that were very involved in the needs of the community. And uh, then I went downtown on the bus or the train to West Side of Manhattan, to an elite private school where I got a scholarship in the wake of um, Dr. King's activism. That was just one of those first ones to get scholarships to one of the elite private schools. So I had had six years of being the only black person in my entire grade in high school, middle school and high school. And it's sort of like a slow burn because no one prepared us. I mean, no, our parents Ooh, never said.
0: Oh, stop, stop, stop. Put a at. <laughs> right. Oh, you said it. She said, it's a slow burn.
3: Yes, it's like it is. Like
0: James Baldwin talked about, you know, once we become conscious of being black in this country, it's to be enraged all the time. It really is a slow burn. So I like that anyway, yeah. go back to what you were saying.
1: <laughs> no, so, you know, uh, and our parents didn't give us any kind of warning and no one said, you know, when you go to that school, you need to do this. You didn't do that. You just found yourself immersed and you began to notice things. And that was my experience in high school. And I, I still left high school pretty naive and, and um, not really that conscious. But once we got to Swarthmore, and um, we began to realize just sort of my, what they call microaggressions today. We had, we didn't know those words. We didn't have the word microaggression, but we experienced them, believe me. And so it was like a plantation. We went there. The only black adults were cutting grass and cooking food. They changed our bed linen because this was an elite school. We didn't have to change it. You know, they brought the clean sheets for us. We didn't have to wash our own clothes. And um, there were no black professors. In fact, there were no blacks in any white country job and the thing that would one of the things that first hit us is that these middle-aged black people whom we got to know and they became in loco parentis for us they they were the only black people around so we we immediately bonded with them and they were being called by their first names and they and no other adults were being called by their first names and it didn't take long for us to we're we can't call these people they could you know they're our mother's age and and so we said, "Why can't, you know, what is your last name? And then we began to address them by their last names. And then we began to demand that the college address them. So that was the one of the first microaggressions. The first activist thing we did was go to the college and say, why is it that only the black adults are called by their first names? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we demand that their name badges be changed to their last name, like everybody else. And we didn't realize that we endeared ourselves to the to the working staff. I mean, they loved us anyway. But then when we we kind of did that just out of um youthful, you know, respect, um, we found later on when we actually did the sit-in, some of our most loyal backers were sort of these spook who sat by the door, black people that were cleaning yeah. and cooking. <laughs> they took they took care of us completely yeah. and during the during the takeover. So it's that slow burn where you just start to realize that there's something very unequal and inequitable going on here and disrespectful, that's the word. And we began to to complain and to, there were just numerous things like that. And we outlined some of them in the book. And people from that generation will recognize it. The minute we talk to people our age, they say, oh yeah, we went through that. We experienced that. So that was the, that was the milieu that was going on just on a personal level when we entered. I give you
0: a, a news flash, it's still going on today. So it's not wow. that you brain's and that is the real disheartening. Certainly my generation is more privileged and we have no concept of what you endured and went through so that we could stand on your shoulders but you're right we have the words we have the vocabulary now but we're still dealing with the same drama on college campuses particularly mm-hmm. majority campuses. Yes. And
2: in fact in fact just like Marilyn said we didn't have the word microaggression today they use the real nicey-nicey diversity inclusion and equity yep. mm-hmm. but that's exactly what we were fighting for back in the 60s we were fighting for diversity we were fighting for inclusion and we were fighting for equity right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: marilyn may you want to go ahead and finish out what you were saying i'm sorry we got all yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so you had asked what it was like when we entered. So you know we were very naive, and but one of the things that we discovered when we uh, began, when we began to address the issues that we, as one at a time, as they came up, and we we began to to get to know each other better, and even when we were writing the book, one of the things think that we had in common. We were mostly first generation. Most of our parents had not gone to college. Some of, uh, one or two of us had parents who had gone to historically black colleges and universities, but I don't know that any of our parents had gone to any predominantly white institution. So we were new at this. We didn't have role models for that. We were mostly on scholarship and um, it was a, you know, so we, nobody had prepared us for the type of struggle that we were going to gain. But what we, well, and we didn't come there to fight and we didn't come there to, to make trouble, but we, we had a strong moral core. And when we started to talk about the book, we all realized that our parents were the kinds of parents growing. Up the center of the community, like people, they were always opening their doors to people. People from out of town could stay in our homes. People could get food back at the pta in the community i saw my mother go between warring teenagers with weapons and put her body in there to stop them from fighting each other so she was an aggressive military type of person as far as civil rights or anything but the kind of courage that she exhibited and the moral core that's what we recognized had been transferred to us so I think that was what enabled us to when you said how could we take on something like this we didn't really know what we were doing but it was just in us to not to resist and to it was in us to resist and we were driven i think by a moral uh, we had faith that we believed that if you do the right thing you're going to you're going to succeed um, people will join you if you're doing the right thing and that proved to be true so uh, we we didn't start out to make trouble but um, we were equipped by the upbringing that we had had.
0: So let me ask each of you to to answer this next question. I'll give each of you a moment. um, We're coming up on the time here, but, um, I guess the question, Marilyn Holyfield I'd like to ask you is what are the key takeaways that you want this new generation to get from your experience uh, during this historic and uh, unbelievably critical time in our nation's history during the late 1960s and into the 70s?
2: The most, I, I think one of the most important takeaways is that change is possible. It may not be apparent, and it may, you may look like that proverbial David and Goliath and that the institutions are so strong, they're so powerful and so well-funded, but change is possible. And that there is power in trust and respect and each other, and that there is power in looking forward to doing what's right, what is just, and what is
0: equitable. I think that's good. Uh, Marilyn May, let me ask you, As you see where we are as a nation right now, there is a clear assault on the teaching of accurate racial history, which you all lived in real time, on banning of books that certain folks don't like. Uh, Even the words of white discomfort have been put into legislative bodies about what you can teach here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, our new governor has a hotline to call and tell on teachers if they teach the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. What the hell's happening? What's going on? What, what, have we seen this movie before or what? what, what, yes. what what's going on?
1: yes, we have. And that's one of the things that we realize and even in thinking back on the book, when we fought for black studies and have that first concentration, we thought that once that was in place, it would be there forever. You couldn't. How could you unlearn? How could you undo <laughs> The, the 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 you know the information that was being given out and here we are fifty years later seeing this backlash again and this is not the first time some are calling this the third reconstruction because yeah. we we just see that over and over we see how people can rewrite the history of the last election and they can just unilaterally say somebody won that didn't win and you know have the have the the, the data to back it up the artificial data so disinformation all of that that's not new um, the thing that gives me hope is that so many black profess- black professors and phd level researchers have emerged over these 50 years there've been p- p- tenured professors who've had a whole career teaching Black Studies and are retired since we started with the first Black Studies course. And that is just amazing. And we're going to have to safeguard those documents, those books. We're going to have to keep them somewhere because they will be probably book banning and purging if things keep going the way they're going. Um, We are right now trying to start an endowment fund so that we can in perpetuity at least have funds available so that black studies will have some funding in the future after we're sort of gone on. Uh, But we have no way of knowing what what the environment's gonna be like at these predominantly white institutions or in the society, we only can try to provide the funding so that there was money if the people are so minded to carry this forward. So that's one of the things that we're doing, the proceeds of our book, are, are being sent back to, to an, a, set up an endowment fund so that there will be Black studies in perpetuity. And that's not an easy journey. We, we have some serious battles, even in trying to do that.
0: Sure. Uh, Harold, I'm going to give you uh, the last word in terms of just um, your thoughts on this and the impact of what you three and your other five associates did here very historic um very bold I I think I'm still stuck at the boldness of you guys I love it uh but let me ask you this Harold if you were giving advice to young black activists today on these predominantly white campuses um again with all the tools that we have in the 21st century uh we have the internet we have uh you know successful black stories. We saw today as we're recording this episode that the first black woman um, to be nominated to the United States Supreme Court was presented by the President of the United States of America with a black female vice president standing next to him. It was it was quite the thing to see, to see the, the President of the United States of America, a white man, uh, flanked by two black women, uh, wow. What a moment. Uh, but Harold, what would your advice be again in this context that we're operating in now uh, to young black activists on college campuses or in corporations, whatever, trying to, you know, get a seat at the table, trying to see more diversity? Any, any thoughts on that? Any guidance from the book?
3: Yeah. W- one of the things uh, I would say or uh, is that uh, people need to realize that when we get together, uh, we have a collective tower that is unbelievable and uh, you know we were successful because we worked together uh, in by consensus uh, you know we didn't um, we didn't have uh, charismatic leaders uh, you know that we followed uh, we all had roles and we and we followed them and and we, we did our roles and, and, and got uh, a major task done. So if we we have collective power but only if we can get uh, have the trust, and get rid of the any behaviors of, uh, you know, stabbing each other in the back uh, and um, thinking of for ourselves, uh, you know, it's, it's just um, unlimited what we can do.
0: I think that's right, Marilyn. I was writing down as you and both the Marylands were saying these words, and I think the Harold just wrapped it up well, which is you said moral, morals, trust, respect, faith. Uh, but Yes. That- really trusted one another and you had respect for one another and young people listen listen up you know I always talk to you because I'm worried about your generation very uh you know trust and respect morals those things are not just what your grandparents had and your parents have and your aunts and uncles have it's what you need to have too and if you want to resist if you want to make change what these three people have lived by example, put themselves literally physically at risk, put themselves at risk academically and for their futures, is that they showed you what is possible when you do walk by a code of what's right and what's wrong and that you deserve to be where you are. And that if you want to make change, it's not going against each other, it's not calling each other names, it's not fighting, it's being unified. And that's really, for me, what I took away uh, from the book, among the many great things, Marilyn, Marilyn and and Harold, is that you all were able to do this uh, and still going to lead very amazing, uh, accomplished lives. So you didn't lose something. You didn't have to sit there and think about, well, as some of us do, right? well, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to help get that person a promotion or I'm not going to lift this brother or sister because I don't know how that's going to make me look or I don't know what it's going to cost me. And I think we have a lot of that that goes on. And um, your generation was not that way. And I really admire that. So uh, again, Marilyn Holford, tell us how how can people get the book? How can they learn more about the book and uh, pick up a copy?
2: Well, the book is on Amazon and... We uh, invite you to go to Amazon. We invite you to go to your independent bookstores. Many of them have the books and particularly the black bookstores in your community. Amazon audible for people who like to listen to books. You can get it on audible. You can get it Kindle. You can get it any which way you want to get it and just Uh, click in seven sisters and a brother and it will pop up. And,
0: and let me just say to everybody again, thank you all for being here. Um, it means so much. I feel honored and I mean this sincerely to talk with you and I wish that uh, we could, we could talk for hours and we'll have you back again. I promise. Uh, and because I think there's a lot that's going to happen in this country over the next year. Uh, and we, Sophie,
2: we are so honored that you did pin the forward to our book and we are honored that you had us on your show today
0: well like i said to each generation we have an obligation and your generation literally changed the world in in, in the civil rights movement and i think of that uh that it's not that's in my lifetime i mean i wasn't I was two when you guys were at college. I don't mean <laughs> <laughs> to. turning two. And, uh, you know, but it's, it, my point is, it's it's in my parents' lifetime, and, and it, it is not that far away. I think sometimes we think we're really far removed from the civil rights struggle or from Jim Crow. And we're not at all. No, Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing the remnants and the vestiges of that now. So yes. thank you again. I cannot say enough because you need to get your flowers while you're still here. You need to get your love while you're still here. Uh, we need to give you platforms to give voice to this. Uh, I wanna do more with you. Uh, I want to you know, see if we can get you on the Griot and some of the other uh, places where I think your voices need to be heard. So I'm committed to that. And this has been great for me, and I know our guests are going to love it. We'll get some outtakes up, and and I'll get you some of that. But it'll be uh, it'll be live on Sunday morning, as always. So thank you so much, um, and God bless you for what you did. Just awesome. Thank, yeah, thank you. thank you, hey, thank you, thank you so much. Okay, bye bye now. Bye. Bye-bye.